Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Today on show number 87, it's my pleasure to welcome back to the program, Lanny Mulrath. Lanny is the author of Fit Quickies and an upcoming book coming out in September 2015 called The Plant-Based Journey. And this interview is really kind of two podcasts in one. For the first half, we talk about something that's near and dear to her heart, which is one of the most important parts of any journey of transition, any lifestyle transition that you want to make, any habits you want to break and form, is exercise. And you might think, well, if I'm trying to improve my relationship or if I'm trying to improve my eating, exercise is kind of tangential. Like that's maybe a nice to have or something that I could do later on when I've sorted out this other stuff. It turns out exercise is kind of one of those keystone habits and also the neurochemistry of exercise just makes every other change a whole lot easier. So the first part of the podcast, we talk about exercise. In the second part, we talk about the plant-based journey and more specifically, strategies that people use to change that work and don't work. And I think you're going to find this a really fascinating and useful interview. So without any further ado... And Lanny Mulrath, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you, Howard. I am really pleased to be part of Plant Yourself once again. Yeah. So today we got a couple things to talk about. Um, one is, so you're you come to the plant based world largely from exercise science, and so I really wanted to explore with you the relationship of physical activity and all the other parts of living a healthy, vibrant, mm -hmm. plant-based life. So to just, uh, let's, let's start off by just, um, you know, give us an overview of what's missing if you're doing everything right, but you're not getting physically active. What, 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 is, what does that do to your success in all areas? Well, I'll tell you what, it's not maximizing your opportunities for scrambling all of your resources for change, which are right in your own body. Most people think, um, when we're talking about exercise, most people, when they think of exercise or the value of it, they connect it with burning calories or managing your weight, getting um, a stronger heart or building muscle, maybe even getting a better figure. But And it does all of these things. I'm not saying it doesn't, but this buries the lead because the real value of physical activity is the effect that it has on your brain. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go so far as to say that physical activity walks away with the award for best performance in the role of supporting player in transition to a healthy lifestyle, and particularly in my area of work being the plant-based diet. So it's, it's such an easy avenue to help facilitate change because of the changes it makes in your brain. Well, that's, that's a pretty big statement that, that the physical exercise is the biggest uh, contributor to brain health. Um, where, where, where do you get that from? Where does that come from? I didn't say it was the biggest contributor to brain health. Okay. I said it walks away with the award for best performance and role supporting player for transition. Okay. So there's a little bit of a leap from what you said, and it certainly is uh, a proven benefit for brain health and mental health and cognitive ability. And that'll come up as we talk a little bit forward about, as we go through about some of the 
releases of biochemistry that happens just when you start moving your body. Okay, great. So I'm glad I made that mistake. So, you, <laughs> so you know, obviously I'm I'm perfect and I never make mistakes. But you know, I, 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 did, I did it. You know, to a straw man for all of my listeners who might be thinking the same thing. No, seriously. So what what's the difference between what you said and how I misparaphrased it back? Well, you said that it was the biggest uh, indicator of health for the brain, and I didn't make that claim. I said that it is a the one that's a big player in facilitating change, and it's overlooked. And uh, you know, Howard, I see this over and over in my practice when people come to me and they want help with transition to the healthier plant-based lifestyle. I say, well, look, I'd love to help you out and work with you, but realize that to get the best change that you want, that means the most sustainable, the, the best way to get there and to have the biggest overall um, influence on that change, you need to consider three things. Not only the food, which of course is important, but also what's going on with frame of mind and in, with your physical activity. Because even though, and you know, all the, um, the plant-based doctors tell us, you know, it's all about the food, it's the food, it's changing the food that makes a difference. And I'm not saying that's not correct. That's true. But if there's a simple thing that you can do that makes that whole shift all that much easier, why would we not just do that? Mm. So in other words, when you're talking, and we'll get into this when we talk about your new book, The Plant-Based Journey, when you're talking about shifting your diet, you're talking about a gazillion little details, some big mm -hmm. principles, but tons of little things you have to start doing a little bit differently. Whereas mm -hmm. when you're talking about physical activity, you could be talking about just one thing, like a really, really simple addition or change to your life. It's exactly, it's the same in both with the food and the fitness. It's all about micro changes. And some people start with one micro change and some people can take more micro changes at once. So it's, it's partly knowing yourself too and your ability to handle change. But we know that going in increments and building on success and building that self-efficacy, which is, you know, that confidence factor, which is, by the way, the number one predictor of success in developing a fitness program, changing your diet, you know, your confidence in your ability to follow through. Mm. So, so it's like it's the, uh, the your expected future. Whatever mm -hmm. you think your future will be, you'll take the actions to do it. And so, if you're mm -hmm. if you're like saying, "I'm definitely going to get fit and trim and work out and eat right this year," but you really don't believe it, you're going to act in accordance with your true beliefs. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And that's also that statement is, "I'm going to get fit and trim and eat right this year." That is so broad. When people go into it looking like that, looking at it like that, it's no wonder that a success rate is going to be lower than it could be because it's not specific enough. It's not looking at um, even to say, I just want to be healthier. What does that mean? It, it has to be tied to not only specific change, but also an emotional component. When people say, when they come to me and say, well, I just, I want to get healthier and I want more energy. And I go, well, what does that mean? What does that look like in your life? Why is it that you want to have more energy? Is it so you can, you know, dash through the airport without collapsing? Um, is it so that you can have a bigger garden? Like I know you're gardening, so you certainly need energy for that. So what is it that you're looking for having? So if you bring it from a broad down to a specific, and then you build with micro changes toward that. Gotcha. So what do you find about exercise that supports 
all these changes. So okay. just, yeah, let's let's just get into uh, the the specifics, as you said. Yeah. Well, we all know about. It's very well known that exercise is a stress reliever, and this is because of the the release of biochemistry that takes place. You know, the the release of norepinephrine and the dopamine release that creates changes of um, pleasurable sensation, and it just makes you feel better. And these things are the same things that many people are seeking in uh, addictive drugs or, you know, highly pleasurable foods. We can get those same things directly by exercising. So that's one point. But here's the thing. When, as simple as putting one foot in front of the other, your body starts to kick in this biochemistry uh, that I just described to you. And along with that comes a release of what's called BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And that is an, a protein that's circulating in your brain that when it connects with this, this biochemistry that has been released, this cascade, as it were, that together these create a neurogenesis, which means you can build new neurons, you build new connections in the brain. You are able to then learn new things, which is basic to lifestyle change. When you're changing your lifestyle, aren't you learning new things? Hmm. So I guess what you're saying makes so much sense. I'm trying to figure out why it's not common sense. And I think I'm pointing my finger right now at schools, which like the way we grew up, we thought of learning as something that happens while you're sitting yes. that involves yes. words yes. or symbols. And, you know, gym and music were sort of nice to have extras or ways to burn off. Well, they'd been energy. cut out, too. PE programs, gone, all over the place, all over our country. Right. So if you think about the way human beings evolved, everything that we had, you know, for hundreds of thousands of years, everything that we had to, to learn was physical. There weren't, there wasn't anything to read or, or <laughs> mathematically puzzle out. It was all, you know, how do you interact with your, with your environment using your body, right? Yeah, we needed to have some of those higher skills of strategizing and that, but it wasn't book learning. Yes. Right. I mean, you know, strategizing about where, you know, how to follow the, the seasons, you know, where to get how our, to survive. To get period. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, so it makes sense that physical activity be, provides the stimulus. That basically, you know, no, our, our our Neanderthal ancestors or whatever weren't like getting up out of the cave, stretching, and going for a jog, right? The the, the mo movement was a uh, an indication that there was something a potential for learning. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there is hope with this, um, as we're talking about the drop of physical education in the schools and the, the decrease of emphasis on it. And there is a resource that you would really enjoy. I don't know if you've read Spark by John Rady. No. Um, this book is pivotal to looking at physical activity and brain changes. And um, in in John's book, what he did is it's, this is a perfect case study, by the way. If you're looking for a case study of how exercise facilitates change in the brain and expansion of neuro neurological 
ability and cognitive function. Um, they went to a school. It's you can find out about a school in um, Naperville, Illinois, I believe. And what they did was started a zero-hour physical education program. You've probably heard of, you know, zero period. Before the rest of the school starts, like everyone else is sleeping in and people are coming to zero period, right? So they had a a physical education class for zero period, and it was fitness-oriented. And they had all kinds of toys to get uh, to help measure what they were doing with their cardiovascular ability. So it was all fitness. It wasn't like um, a sports-related, for example. And what here's what happened is over the course of just one semester, the zero-hour period students showed a 17% improvement in reading and comprehension compared with a 10.7% improvement um, among the other literacy students who just opted to sleep in and, you know, do the standard schedule instead of that before class. And that was so impressive to the Naperville administration that they have incorporated zero hour into the high school curriculum as a first period literacy class. They, you know, they actually call it literacy. It's a fitness class, and it's called learning readiness physical education. So the guidance counselors are suggesting all their students to also get their hardest subjects early in the morning after they've taken zero period PE because it primes their brains with just the same thing I was telling you about, creating neuroplasticity and developing cognitive function by this release of biochemicals in coordination with all the things that are happening in the bloodstream. So here's another, another note on this same school. And um, a few years later, I think it was 1999, I'm not sure what the um, year flow is in this, but the eighth graders in this school finished first in the world in science, just ahead of Singapore on these international standardized tests. So, uh, you know, and us against the Orient, it's always been a battle. So they're really demonstrating in measurable events the, the power of this physical activity and learning. Wow, that's that's pretty impressive. I'm I'm imagining there's some reading teachers who uh, would prefer that not to be true. They'd prefer that their own teaching methods were the difference rather than. Yeah, yeah. Well, why not make them work together? You know, I taught sixth grade for 20 years, and uh, obviously, since I was keyed into exercise, even though some of this research is just proliferating every day, we've known for years that it's a stress releaser and that it is brain friendly for building brain function. So I would pepper it in and I'd always tell my kids, you know, it's time for PE. It's your most important class of the day. And they loved it that a teacher said that because I knew how important it was. And doing those standardized tests, you know, I would ever, I would get them up and to do um, mini bursts of exercise, kind of like Fit Quickies, like my Fit Quickies book before doing tests. So, um, yeah, it's it's been around, but it just needs to be appreciated more. And we've got the data now. Hmm. Uh, so physical activity improves brain function, neuroplasticity helps us learn. How else can it help us as we uh, tackle a significant lifestyle change? Well, neuroplasticity, if you don't have the ability to change how you think, that's what neuroplasticity means. It means the neurons have, are, are plasticized, kind of like you can mold them. 
So what's the opposite of that? It's, it's being cemented. If you don't stimulate this release of the brain-derived neurotrophic factor and get this cycle going, it is much harder for you to budge from habits and practices that you have because you are not priming yourself to build these neuro connections. And they also are connections that connect you with things from patterns from your past that can be helpful to you. Now, we all know that patterns from our past aren't all helpful. This is, you know, where bad habits come from, right? Like I did this thing before and I'm going to do it again. But we have many successful patterns from our past. And by connecting with the way things that have worked, just by building those um, neural connectors in the brain also facilitates success. What, Plus you've got the, you know, you've got the, um, the, the boost, boost of mood, which boosts your confidence. And, you know, we can talk about that a little bit more if you want, is, um, when it's best for you during the call to, to see how exactly does exercise boost your mood. It's not just a reflection like, I feel better after I exercise. There's actual biochem- biochemistry that's taking place that causes that. Okay, and, that, and yeah, I wanted to talk about that because in my experience, the main reason when I choose not to exercise, like I get up in the morning and I plan to exercise and I don't, it's because I'm in a low mood. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of a paradox there. Like at that moment, you could, you know, give me 20 lectures on runner's high. <laughs> like, no, not interested. I'm, I'm not I just want to eat. <laughs> so, yeah. So let's let's start with, um, you know, is, is it just a perception like I'm sweating or what's what's the. What's the science behind the relationship between exercise and mood? There is a lot of research on this, and I actually, um, you can go quite a bit into the details, but I've kind of been able to drill it down to the, the three main ways that exercise does boost your mood, and I've kind of tried to boil it down so it's a little easier to understand. And it's in three main avenues, and then I'll elaborate a little bit on each of these. One of them is the effect of exercise of, on oxygenation, of the prefrontal cortex of the brain, so that's number one. Number two is the effect of exercise on brainwave activity. And then number three is the effect of exercise on blood levels of something that's called 5-HT, which is your serotonin, melatonin production cascade, you know, all your happy hormones. So this is how this happens, and actually I'm looking um, in my brain, I'm looking back at a, a study that was done particularly on prefrontal cortex and, and serotonergic systems, that's that 5-HT thing I was talking about, and in this study, there were subjects that performed a pedaling exercise, like a stationary bike, and they were just moderately exercising. It wasn't like a full-blown-out interval or anything like that, and it was for a modest 15 minutes, and here's what happened. It was all measurable. It evoked this significant increase in oxygenation of the prefrontal cortex of the brain. Now, why is that important? And as you know, that is our command center of the brain. Your prefrontal cortex is the part of you that you know, makes the higher choice, that um, it's your social filter so we don't act inappropriately. It helps you reach for the apple instead of the cookie, which we aren't always successful at. But the stronger, you, more you are able to kind of um, support that prefrontal cortex, the better you are at making choices that are more compatible with your higher aspirations. 
So oxygen to that part of the brain is directly correlated to the ability of it to function. And this was um, measured through something called a, uh, a functional near-infrared spectroscopy. It's actually, a, you know, you can measure it. So there is one reason that you have a better mood and have increased um, function and confidence just by getting exercise. It's measurable. Um, another is the, I said another was brain measurement of brain wave, func- wave function, and they were able to measure through EEG, electroencephalography, that there is significant increase in alpha bands during and after this physical exercise. And we all know the power of alpha waves, right? More relaxing, uh, more expansive. And then third was this increase in this 5-HT flow of biochemicals, and that includes, these are all our happy hormones, serotonin, melatonin. These are connected with well-being and equanimity. Now, those are the same biochemicals, Howard, that I was saying mix up with the BDNF, that brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And this is like, it's called miracle growth for the brain. It just—it's like sprinkling um, fertilizer on your flower garden. Wow. <laughs> so that it reminds me of this um, Native American story that I've heard told many different ways. But the, the gist is the young boy, you know, go, is, is asking his his grandfather, you know, about how how to be a good person. And the grandfather says, you know, each of us has two wolves inside of us. One is you know loving and kind and helpful and supportive and positive, and the other is hateful and angry and violent and and negative, and and they're always fighting. And the boy says, well, how, you know, which one wins? And the grandpa says, whichever one we feed. Wow, that's. That simplifies it. That's great. Yeah. It's like, so we have, we have these parts of the brain and they're both, you know, evolutionarily very useful. So if we just, you know, say we have the higher function and then we have the, the sort of fight or flight or freeze or fright response, the stress response that if we're, that exercise actually redirects oxygen to the part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex Mm -hmm. that is concerned with long-term survival as opposed to what you know getting out of danger this minute yeah or following through on a lesser impulse you know going for the cookie jar instead of something that's going to be more i mean this is where it comes down to brass tacks of what we are doing in our life you know we're in our kitchen we're faced with these you probably have experienced this uh when you have gone out for a run or exercise or done something um you're more inclined to be interested in an orange and a piece of pie than if you were just laid around. Is, would you say that's true, that you've, you're more inspired to want something that feels like more physically nourishing than just a rich calorie substance? Boy, that's complicated for me because I think part part of my brain is going, you know, with every step, like, oh, I'm deserving some piece of crap now. <laughs> hmm. um, I think cer- certainly, um, I think I have... I think I have some wrong thinking going on, which muddies the question, but it, cer- it certainly is easier to, to do the quote right thing when I feel like I'm already doing the right thing, when I have this, this identity around it. And I, mm-hmm. I guess I haven't thought about just in pure neurology, whether I'm, um, I'm more capable, but it, you know, it, it, cer- it certainly, I have to think about that because I think I'm, well, you know what, there there is some research on exactly this. 
there was a group of, um, how many people was it? 15, 15 uh, men, and they were put on, went through exercise, I think they did 60-minute bout of exercise. And before the exercise, they were shown images of health-promoting food and um, health, not health-promoting food, kind of like I was just talking about the apples and the pie, or the oranges and the pie. And then the same thing was done afterwards on different occasions. And their brain response was higher for the non-appropriate to health foods before the exercise. And after the exercise, their brain, and this is direct measurement. This isn't because they thought they should eat healthier because they had just exercised. It was actually a neural response to images of these different foods. So there is evidence in the research of how we are responding to or drawn to these different foods based on our activity level. Wow. So one of the books I read about habit, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, it's called The Power of Habit, Mm -hmm. uh, Martin Duig. He talks about exercise as a keystone habit. Is this sort of thing, when you start doing this, then everything else can change based on that. Mm -hmm. So it kind of sounds like what you're saying uh, from a, a uh, scientific, neurological, or hormonal perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's just another tool to use, and it's so accessible. And I think this is important for people to understand because many people are intimidated by the idea of um, exercise for change because they have a, a pre-set about what exercise means, that it's a big honking workout and busting yourself and hours of activity. But we see that these changes, as I've um, shared with in a couple of these instances even, it's not a whole lot of movement to get a little bit of budge in brain power. As soon as you stand up from sitting down, you are starting to scramble some of this beneficial cascade for improving your lifestyle. And that's why it's important with change that you start with micro changes and that people get away from thinking that it has to be this all or nothing, black or white, our workout or nothing. Hmm. Yeah, so because I think when, when, you know, just like everything else, um, the fitness industry has been commercialized. So yeah. that what we what we're taught and what we're told and what we see as images of fitness are things that we generally have to pay money for to, you know, large corporations. So when, you know, Mm. when people think about, oh, I want to get fit, the first thing they think is I got to join a gym, Mm. right? Or just, so, which means I think all, you know, which cascades all sorts of negative things. Like everybody else in the gym looks good and I don't, everyone else knows what they're doing and I don't. I tried once, I had a 30 day free membership and I went twice and gave up because I didn't feel good on the fifth day. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what are, what do you teach people as, as options to begin making micro changes as opposed to, you know, I'm going to join, you know, it's new year's, I'm going to join the gym. I'm going to go four times a week at six in the morning and I'm going to be amazing. <laughs> going to be amazing. That's good. 
It starts with, um, I have four steps that I take people through when they're trying to make a change like this to try to drill it down to things that are doable. And of those four steps, it starts with awareness, like awareness of where you are. And usually if someone is wanting to get more fit or become a more active person, they become aware that where they are right now is not a match for where they like, would like to be, Right. So first is becoming aware of it, and then is is becoming aware of um, after awareness, you set an intention then of what it is that you want. Like, and we were talking earlier, Howard, about just saying I'm going to become really fit and do you know get in really good shape this year. Um, that may be that's very broad, but what actually is your intention with that? Is it that you um, want to be able to run a 5K in six months? Is your intention that you want to be able to walk? 20 minutes, three days a week. You, if, if you have a bigger vision of why you want to be more fit, that's one thing. But then you have to set an intention of specifically. And from there, you need to identify the micro changes you can make. I'm taking through the, the steps, and then I'll give you a couple examples. You have to identify the micro changes you're making. You're going to get to those intentions. And then from there, you start to practice them. So, for example... Uh, one of my, and I wrote about her in the, the plant-based journey because her example is so powerful, is Nicole. And Nicole had come to me for assistance with her journey, um, her transition to plant-based lifestyle, but specifically she really wanted to get some assistance with becoming more active because she knew when she was more active that she had more energy and that she felt more on top of things. She had more sense of control in her life. You know how we all feel when we're more fit, right? Mm-hmm. And she had three kids, so you'd think she'd be getting a lot of activity, but she was just, she wanted more energy so she could keep up with them better and just be a more effective parent for them as well. So the problem was then how she's also very busy with having these kids. So what could she do to step up her um, activity? And she wanted not only some more cardiovascular time, but she also wanted some muscle shaping and she wanted to, she was really interested in the fit quickies. So what we did is she became aware. So let's take it through the four steps. Her awareness was that her energy was low and it wasn't a match for what she really wanted to be at. And her intention was that she wanted to be able to get in a little bit more cardio time and also to build in some muscle challenges that would give her more shape and strength at the same time. So what we did from there was just instead of saying, okay, um, you're going to do this and do this, which is where we all have heard so much in exercise, you know, do this many minutes so many times a week and you'll be there. But then there's that disconnect between where we are and wanting that and how do we join up with that so that we can actually participate. So what happened is Nicole walks her kids to school every day. And we were thinking, okay, that's a time when you're kind of active. How can you make that work a little bit better? Maybe add on to that walk. And what we came it down to was the micro change we made that made that happen was she discovered or became aware that when she had her yoga pants on, she felt inclined to be active. So what happened is before she went out 
with her kids to take them to school, she put on her yoga pants, and this inspired her a feeling of being a more active person. And this led to, there's a micro change. This led to her adding on five, then 10 minutes to her walk of the kids to school upon return and started spilling over into adding on small five-minute workouts upon return from home. So we kind of built this up over time. But it was one micro change after another that ended up in big results. And the whole cascade started with a strategic assessment that it was the pants she was wearing that was going to... Uh... That was the micro change for her, yeah. So yeah. that, that's that's really empowering to think, you know, because I think of the micro change, the micro change is I'm going to put up a pull-up machine, I'm going to do five pull-ups every day, as opposed to, right, why am I not doing that now? There's a whole bunch of obstacles, and if we can There's figure a out whole bunch. what those are, yeah. and, and it's easy, you know, it's easier to eliminate obstacles than to smash through them, right? Yeah, it, it, that's exactly right. And um, another example is, for micro changes, is when people say, okay, I'm going to walk, start walking 30 minutes, you know, five days a week. And they come home from work and they go, well, maybe tomorrow, <laughs> maybe tomorrow I'll do that. So what you do is you drill it down. You go through the same process. You know, if you're aware that you, you're not getting exercise and your intention is to become a person who walks, you know, five times a week for 30 minutes, then, then you go and identify the micro changes. So if you come home from work and you're going to go on a walk, that's your plan. That's your only time you can do it. What's the very first thing you have to do to be able to go on a walk? Um, and you know, you know, if you don't want to answer, I can I'm thinking, I, you know, I mean, I need, um, I can't have anything that is more pressing that demands my attention, right? I don't need to, I can't. Oh, well, that's impossible. We all know there's always going to be something more pressing. <laughs> Something's going to hijack it. But to actually get out on the walk, all right, well, I need, you I need, need to, to have. I need to be wearing the proper attire. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so like you've, you know, I know I know you wear spiked heels out in the garden all the time, Howard, and well, that those really would helps. not necessarily be appropriate for the walk. It really helps with the aeration of the soil. Yeah, oh, I see. Oh, so you're trying to accomplish two things at once. Very, that's absolutely brilliant. Well, the first thing is you've got to have the right clothing, right? So whether it's your, um, you know, the walking pants and your walking shoes or whatever it is that you are going to go out on a walk. So then you have to put it on. Then you have to get out the door. So what I suggest to people is if all of that is just too cumbersome and too much, too big an obstacle, then how about for the next five days – the day before or the morning of, you simply go get your workout, your walking shoes, and put them by the front door. You don't have to put them on when you get home. You don't have to go on a walk. You just, every day, your job is in connection with this project is to simply get your walking shoes out and have them there by the front door or your walking clothes, you know, whatever it is going to get you out there. And then you just enjoy success with that for a week. Now, I know this sounds like, oh, brother, but this is a micro change that needs to be made for the walk to take place, right? Then for the next period of time, you could take another period of like five days. And simply, now your job is, since you've gotten in the practice of getting your clothes out and ready, now you put them on. You don't have to go out on a walk even. Just put them on. <laughs> you come home from work, you change your clothes. You still don't have to go out on your walk. But you see how you can build step by step? And this has been very effective for people. Mm, it's, it's, it's funny. 
It's almost it's almost like you're uh, you're playing at being somebody else, right? Like you're like if I were the sort of person who went for a walk when I got home from work, this is what I would do. This is what I'd wear. This is how I would act. Even though I'm not going to do it, I'm going to act like it. And I guess well, what tell me what happens after a couple of weeks of that? Well, then you actually get in your walk. Like, then you get your walk in, and then you you build your micro changes from there. We start with five minutes, ten minutes. And that that depends on the individual. Mm -hmm. So I guess you know the the we're, we're, if we're comparing two people, one of whom does the micro changes and the other doesn't. The one who doesn't do the micro changes says, "Well, that's that's silly. I'm just going to go and decide I'm going to go for my 30 minute walk." And a month later, they haven't done it. Whereas the person who made the micro changes is going glacially slow, <laughs> laughably slow. And at the end of a month, they're walking 20 minutes a day. Mm -hmm. So that, that, you know, that these things really uh, compound that once once you start making changes, it creates a cascade. Yeah. And you see, in that case, that uh, you just described it as kind of being laughable, the changes, but see what an obstacle that is. Because we set this expectation that unless it's a life-changing turnaround, it's not going to make any difference. But I've seen over and over again that it does. Even with people who have come to me like um, Sandra, who, uh, and I, I'm, she's on my mind because I'm reviewing the manuscript on the book, and I profiled her in there as one of the case studies. She was... Um, she was just stuck. She weighed 300 pounds. She wanted to change her diet. She wanted to change her exercise. She just was unhealthy, and she just couldn't do any of it. So I asked her, I said, well, and she said it hurts to exercise. And you can imagine when you're bearing a lot of weight, it is hard to move around. And I asked her, well, can you stand? Can you stand? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, we're going to start there. So she started by simply standing for short periods of time every day. And then adding more of those. I mean, we're talking five minutes of standing. And to someone who's very active or never had that problem, it might seem, as you said, like laughable or like it's not going to make any difference. But that translated to standing for 10 minutes. It translated to walking. And it translated to 100-pound weight loss and dietary change because she just started moving her body by standing up. Wow. And what, what, what did she feel when she was able to stand for five minutes at a time? Was it a, was it a sense of... Of accomplishment, of, yes, re yes. of reassessment? That's where that, uh, that self-efficacy, that belief in yourself for being able to actually facilitate change or be successful at exercise is built. If you have everyone around telling you, oh gosh, you can only stand for five minutes, how pathetic, then, and that's all you can do, where, where's that going to get you? But if you're coming from a place that this is a move in the right direction, this is a micro change that I can make that is actually making me a more active person than before, which is not even getting up off my backside. Hmm. So, yeah, so it seems like, you know, the, our only two choices are either do nothing or do everything. And, and it turns out that the real choice is between do nothing or do the, or tini do the tiniest thing you could think of yeah. in the right direction. Yeah. And I think that do everything or do nothing is also where we've kind of built in being able to check out of the program because it's too easy to make excuses. So we don't just end up not having to do anything. Mm. What, what do you do for someone who they're, they're, 
concept, you're coaching them and they're conceptually behind this idea. And you tell them, you know, so put out your running shoes, your running clothes. And then at the end of a week, you talk to them again and they say, well, you know, I haven't done it. Mm-hmm. Is, do you have people like that who even even the micro change is resisted? I have had that with, that's interesting. Um, yeah, and that's where you have to look at deeper issues too. And that's where I go through the mindset part of the program where we start looking at hidden obstacles. What is exactly that, what are you, why is that manifesting in your life and what is it that is driving that? And that's a real issue. I, I talk about that in that plant-based journey as well, and, which is why it, it's so important to address the food and the fitness and the frame of mind because sometimes you it's difficult to get it together in any of these avenues unless you uncover these hidden obstacles that are really deep-seated that are in your way of progressing forward and, and taking charge of your life, even in um, smaller ways. For example, and this isn't exercise-related, it's food-related, I had one client, and she really, she was, um, I don't remember what it was, she was very overweight, and she knew all about plant-based diet, but she just couldn't get it together to get the food in gear. And... It, it, the obstacle was very clear. It's it's a real good example of what you just said. That she loved potatoes. She knew that potatoes were good for her. She had a big bag of potatoes, but nothing was getting cooked. No. <laughs> so uh, I I asked her, well, how do you cook potatoes? How do you like to cook them? And she went to this very elaborate description of like to slice them here, and then I put them in this pan, and then I do this and this and this. But it was um, to me, it was like this long, this long process getting simply getting potatoes cooked that wasn't happening. So I asked her if she had a microwave, and she did. And I said, well, that you can cook them faster that way, and that way at least you'll get start eating them because if there's obviously some obstacle between you and just chopping those vegetables up. And so she said, yeah, I do have a microwave, and, but she didn't have any pans to cook anything in, in it. So you start to see all, the, see all the indicators here, all the kind of walls between getting something done, even though, you know, you're supposed to eat a potato, but um, getting yourself connected with actually doing that in one way, shape, or form keeps getting blocked. So that way it became a matter of this isn't just about the potatoes and this isn't, she was not very well able to make the micro change of, you know, getting things ready to go. So we had to converse um, on other levels about what was going on. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, it's, at some point, I think we we tend, some of us tend to think that everything is representative of a really deep issue. And it seems like the micro changes is the place to start. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, one of my favorite cartoons, I think it might be an old New Yorker cartoon, is a, a guy at his office desk on the his back is on the floor and his feet are up on the desk and he's got a thought bubble saying, I'd be more productive if I had a chair. And <laughs> I love that because, you know, there's entire industries, billion dollar industries for productivity. But in this case, the problem was I didn't have a chair. He couldn't sit at his desk. Yeah, and that's how, kind of how I think of these these environmental strategies or or behavioral strategies that involve slight tweaks that could then enable other things. That we should do that first in our triage, and if all the micro changes lead to resistance, then we need to go deeper. Yeah, 
Yeah, and so often they help facilitate those, those micro changes. Help us budge on other levels too. So that's why it's so it's so hard to tease them apart, Howard. I think they really are interwoven. These three different aspects of our living in our mind and our body and our food they do do really work together. And I just like to keep it simple. I, I don't think we need really elaborate theories about. Um, how we can facilitate change, we just have to start facilitating change in the easiest way that we can, which is small steps. Mm. So I'm putting myself in the position of someone listening to this who says, okay, I buy it. Um, small changes is the way to go. I've tried big things, heroic efforts. They've all, you know, faltered and failed and I ended up feeling worse. But I don't know how to tell myself that is there are there ways that people can kind of coach themselves like i'm thinking if i decided one day i'm going to put my running shoes by the door i would feel silly it takes someone like you to tell me that to kind of give me permission mm -hmm. to do that mm -hmm. as, as a rational strategy how, how, can people uh do it themselves without needing a a, a coach uh, it depends on the person doesn't it if, if people are going to be resistant to the stage that they say, I, I'm not going to do something so small because it's silly, well, then that's when you have to be open to looking at things in new ways. So hopefully that anyone listening to this who is struggling with making some changes that they really are bigger in their life but want to know how to drill it down, my recommendation is to simply sit down and Whatever it is that your intention is, what you you are wanting to um, change or achieve, is to make, sit down and write down every single detail that would need to happen for that to take place. It's kind of like, we all know about brainstorming, right? And how powerful that is. Yeah. When you have a meeting and you're brainstorming a concept, you go, no idea is too stupid. Nothing's too silly. Even if it just gets, it's all the spaghetti on the wall. So see the spaghetti on the wall, you know, throwing out all these ideas about what are the things that when you see yourself doing these behaviors that, that you want to do, what are all the little things that need to take place for it to happen? It's just like with, um, you know, changing your food. What are the micro changes that you have to go, do to go from wherever you are to eating whole foods plant-based? You know, there's it, every little thing along the way. What happens in your kitchen? What happens in the market? What happens with you eat for breakfast? What All those kinds of things, those are all tiny little changes. So uh, it, it, some of us do need permission to to see things in a different way, but that's why you have your podcast so that we can get <laughs> new ideas from people and and you know get some inroads and kind of open some doors into um, you know letting the the light in a little bit so we can see a new way of looking at things, which could be so liberating. Well, this is hearkening me back to a podcast I did um, about a year ago with a guy named Sam Carpenter, a businessman who wrote a book called Work the System. And his uh, basic idea is that every outcome we get is the result of a system we've built to get it. So that, you know, even something like shopping for food, we don't notice it because it becomes automatic, yeah. but we have a system. The system involves petrol in the car. <laughs> and the keys and the knowing which route to go and which aisles we walk up and down. And if we want to change the outcome of the food we eat, we, ha we have to tweak that system. If we just have an intention to change it, but we're operating from an unconscious, powerful system, then we're going to get the same results we've gotten yeah. before. It sounds like this is exactly what you're saying around, like make a list of everything that has to happen for this behavior to take place. That, that when you look at it, 
um, in the big picture, you will see a system that runs just like, you know, the operating system on your computer. Your computer isn't going to suddenly start dancing because that's not programmed <laughs> into the system. And neither, yeah, you neither are you unless you change your system. Yeah, and we it's funny you were describing about how we go to the market and we're just on an automatic system. But you know when we become aware of that is when we have to go to a different market we don't know where anything is. Mm. You know how that is? Like you know or you even go to um if you're you're in another town or you just are going to a different market and you have to pick something up and you know exactly where it is and your other place because you've got you're on autopilot, you know where to swing by and pick up the applesauce or whatever. But you go into a new market and you have to look through all the aisles, you have to look at the signs and there's a little bit of cumbersomeness to it. So that's kind of evidence of how we have a, a system built into that. Right. And I guess that um, reminds me of when someone tries to change the way they eat, right? They'll um, maybe we're, we're segueing now into uh, an overview of your upcoming book, The Plant-Based Journey. Um, but when you talk about, um, you know, someone making that shift, all of a sudden, even if you're going to the same supermarket, all of a sudden, all of your skills are gone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're, you're just you're a, a beginner again. And, you know, for most people, that's a very uncomfortable feeling. And it's one we would. It is uncomfortable. Yeah. From. Yeah. And that's why I encourage people to make friends with discomfort, because that's a good thing. If you're uncomfortable, that means you're doing something right when you're making change. Mm. So, so can, can we dive into a uh, plant based journey? Yeah, I'd love to. Okay. So the first thing I notice is that the book is organized in terms of stages. So you've got mm -hmm. your journey and you've got um, stages. And um, I'm curious why you, you created the book in that form. What's the importance of stages from your perspective? Because they're universal. Everybody goes through every one of those stages when they're making this change to a plant-based diet. And they, I've seen them in every single one of my clients and in the, the surveys. I did over 1,200 surveys for this. And they're all reflected um, as universal stages. And some people are in one or the other. And everyone reflects back on all of them and gathers all of them to travel forward. It's because when you go on to, um, you know, different levels of experience or expertise with this, you always need to connect back with some of the um, continuing to learn new things and expanding your knowledge and awareness that way. Hmm. Tell me about the survey. What, what did you ask? What did you find out? What was surprising? Oh, God. I'm reaching over to grab. I have this big bundles. Um, well, I asked, um, I asked people, for one, if they could put together a step-by-step -step guide for someone else who was going to be changing to a plant-based diet, what would they put in that? What do they wish they had known when they got started? What would they advise someone else as? What would they tell them about how to transition? Do you think people should go all, all at once or should they go step-by-step? -step? So it was all to find out from the front lines of change, what people's experience was. So going beyond the theory to actual practice. And that's where, that's what the um, surveys were all about. Fascinating. So much fun. Hmm. So when I looked through the stages, um, 
the, my thought was that what you had, you, we can talk about this, the stage of awakening, which is the prerequisite. You suddenly realize you want to do something differently. Mm -hmm. right? You realize either that there's a problem or that there's a possibility that you hadn't considered. Yeah. And yeah. so everyone obviously has to go through that if they want to make a change. Otherwise, they wouldn't even begin. Right. But then you have a second phase call, stage called scout. And mm -hmm. I, my guess is that this is what most people miss. Because let's say, you know, you've, you've just watched a video, you've gone to a Forks Over Knives event or an Engine 2 event or a Veg Fest or something. And all of a sudden, you're like, you've got religion, right? You, you're, you're around, <laughs> you've heard the arguments, you've heard T. Colin Campbell talk, you, you're around people you got who, awakened, are, who yeah. are passionate and vibrant. And now, you, nothing will suffice except going all the way. Mm -hmm. And... That is problematic, right? Well, that you have to respect the micro changes you're going to need to make to get there. You know what? What uh, do you? What's a vegetable? What do you chop it with? Um, all, how do you set up a kitchen? How do you navigate the grocery store in a new fashion? Like you know, we were just conversing about. It's just those. Mm -hmm. Those are the those so all the things that have to be into place to be successful at the bigger picture, which is eating plant based. Right. Because I, I remember when I was. Um... Oh, maybe 12 or 13, I got sort of politically radicalized around energy. So this would have been like 78, you know, 77, 78. Um, you know, the oil crises had been happening. And I'd seen something about solar. And so I was like, oh, you know, solar energy, that's the way all fossil fuels are evil, fuels are evil. <laughs> and that would have just been, you know, fun and interesting, except that my father at the time uh, was on the New Jersey Board of Public Utilities. And in 77, he was named New Jersey's Commissioner of Energy. So we, he actually could do something about this. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, at that point, we had, it was mostly fossil fuels and coal and a certain amount of nuclear. And this is just, you know, before, a couple of years before Three Mile Island. And I was, remember in, in the way that only like a 13-year-old boy can be so much smarter than his father... <laughs> Oh, was, always, always. I was like, really, on his case, you know, yeah. my beginning of my rebellion about this, you know, how how can you know, coal is evil and fossil fuels and gas and oil? Why don't we just go solar? And he said, you know, do, do you want to be the one to tell everyone that I'm unplugging their energy? Right? Mm -hmm. It'll take us thirty years to get there. Mm. You know, you you want me to turn it all off overnight? Right. And, and that, was, that was very hard for me to hear because right? I, I was a purist and I'd seen the light. Oh, yeah. And I think yeah. a lot of people who come to plant based eating feel that same kind of fervor, and, you know, especially if they come to it through uh, ethical veganism, where all of a sudden, you know, any kind of, of animal exploitation is evil. And yet they've still got their cravings. They still got their habits. They've still got their social milieu and they still have years of conditioning and. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in, not, yeah. in the surveys, did you find that, that people had talked about, you know, being really emotionally committed and intellectually committed, but the rest of their life, the 95% the of the iceberg below the surface was dragging them down? Oh, for many people, they reflected about that. Yes. Yeah. So what, how, did, how did people talk about that? This is something that's interesting is uh, when I talk about the different ways that people ask them how they made change, they thought they should do it overnight or, or, you know, take it over time. And of the people that responded that you should do it overnight, 
in the details, they actually started talking about the microchanges they've made. So in their head, they had go all overnight. And then they said, oh, I kind of did this for a while, and then I did this for a while. So even though the perception and their possible advice for another person was to make this massive turnaround, in reality, it was more um, micro-changed. So that was really interesting to read, reflected. Hmm. So I wonder if people who took the survey kind of gained some self-awareness Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Even if your book never came out, that that, was like 1,200 people took this survey? Yeah. Then became better advocates and coaches and and supports for for the people in their lives. Yeah. You know, anytime we do a self-awareness thing like that, because that's basically what it was, it's reflect on your experience and what you advise to others. So these are just really fun to read, just to see that, read between the lines a little bit, too. So do you find when you're coaching people that you often have to actually slow them down? Yeah. So what, what, is, what does that look like? Do you have an example? Well, it's, you can see it reflected in a micro change thing. Um, probably like the potato girl I was just talking to you about. You know, she just wanted to be all of a sudden be able to be really successful at eating all our plant-based meals, but she didn't see that right in front of her was her inability to get the potato going which is almost like the simplest thing to prepare. So that is one way that, that I see it. Another way is um, it, it comes through when people feel discouraged about not having been completely successful at what their at highest aspirations are with the diet and encouraging these people of all the successes that they do have in place and how to build on those. It, it comes back to that, um, that self-efficacy term keeps coming up for me because Building on success is exactly what you do to create more success. Remember I said earlier I taught sixth grade for 20 years? Mm -hmm. If a student fails a test, for example, which of these tactics do you think is going to be more more successful at helping them advance their um, academic success, say if it's on a math test? For me to tell them, you got an F on the test, you cannot get an F anymore, or to say, um, I have some ideas for how to get an A. Would you like that? And then I can show you how to do that. So which one of those approaches do you think is going to be more successful at creating a student getting an A on a future math test? Right. Obviously the one that, yeah. that gives direction and yeah. um, and invites autonomy, invites choice. Exactly. Yeah. We're all just big sixth graders, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I see it. <laughs> So one of the phrases that I love that you, you talk about in the book is perfect enough. Mm-hmm. Can you t- talk about why that's so important? It's, it, this, you know, progress and perfection thing, and now that's become kind of a, um, it's become a phrase that sometimes we don't hear anymore because we've heard it so much. So the, my interpretation of that is perfect enough, which is based on the experience that when we were in Dominica, as I, as I tell in the plant-based journey. And Dominique is this beautiful tropical island away from everywhere, and they don't have much infrastructure. And, you know, the power goes out all the time. You never know when the guy with the produce box is going to come by and... And there's just a lot of built-in problems, as you know. You've lived in kind of far-flung places. 
places. And our hostess was, uh, we were renting a house adjacent to hers, and she came by and she said, oh, um, well, how's this and how's that, asking about different things about the house and the electricity and the power. And we just said, oh, everything's perfect because we've traveled enough and we know you just go with it. You don't expect what you've got at home. When the, you know, when the power goes out at home, it's a horrible thing. But when you're traveling, you just go, oh, that power's out. So we said, oh, everything's perfect. And she was just she just took this big sigh of relief and got a big smile on her face. And she goes, oh, we have this phrase here on the island, and it's, the phrase is perfect enough. And that just says everything. It's like, yeah, it's, it's not perfect, but it's perfect enough. I'm happy with the way things are. And this is a way to look at things from the positive side um, and building forward so that we can build on successes. We don't need so much perfectionism as we need more enoughism. And that has nothing to do with cutting back on our striving for excellence. Striving for excellence and perfectionism are not the same thing. Striving for excellence means you do the best you can and you assemble your tools and prepare yourself as best you can and proceed forward from that. Perfect enough. Mm. And, the, and so the enemy of that, of course, is perfectionism. Mm-hmm. Right, which, which seems like it comes from a, from a positive place. But in my experience personally and working with other people, perfectionism is often very not positive. It's actually a self attack. Yeah, well, that's what, as I, I said something earlier too, along those lines, it's, it's a way that we can check out of the commitment to Oh, I didn't, you know, I blew it today, this morning, so I'm just gonna blow it today. It, it feeds that kind of behavior, and that kind of thinking, because it's so black or white. And we're organic in our thinking and our in our growth and our changing. And I think one of the problems, Howard, is people think that you're just going to be making excuses and never following through. Mm. But it, it's been proven, and I don't know if you've read um, Kelly McGonigal's Willpower Instinct. Yes. Yeah. Well, she uh, she uh, in, in other places too. I've read a lot of her material, and I'm not quite sure if it's so much in the book as elsewhere. But this very this guilt sensation that I didn't follow through is is actually counterproductive because it. Uh, I put this in plant based journey too. It helps you. It makes you seek out comforting behaviors because you feel so bad about not having perfect been perfect that you do more of these um, comforting behaviors that are usually more short term, like you know picking out on the wrong foods or some kind of a um, something's going to stimulate the pleasure cycle without moving you actually forward. And that's a direct result of perfectionist thinking. You're just trying to make yourself feel better in any way you can. Yeah, I talk about the the shame cycle where yep. the where the yeah. the you know, you do the bad thing, you feel bad and the way to feel better is to numb out the feeling. With, yeah. With whatever, yeah, that's whatever, the word I use. With whatever shame. addiction mm. yeah. know, is is close at hand. <laughs> I've never thought about that before though. The perfectionism is actually like a back door. Like it's a back door to your commitment. To say, you, oh, know, you need so, to get out for yeah, getting out. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a, an escape hatch. Yeah, that's how I see it. It's a way I could bail. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, yeah. if, if, if all I'm going to be doing are these micro changes day after day and I have complete confidence. And, you know, I've, I've studied um, there's another um, researcher who, who writes a lot about this is BJ Fogg out of Stanford, who, who his phrase is tiny habits. And the example that he gives is most people don't floss. 
as uh, as horrible as that sounds, I think like fifty percent of Americans surveyed say they don't, right. they, don't, they don't really floss. Oh dear! And there's pretty good evidence that flossing is, yeah. is a useful thing. And so <laughs> you know, I said, well, why don't people do it? He says, well, they forget or they bleed. And so his thing is like, keep the floss next to your toothpaste, and after you brush your teeth, here's your tiny habit: floss one tooth. And then, mm-hmm. and then See, throw, micro change. Yeah, throw out the floss, and you know talk about feeling silly like you've got the floss in your hand you've just done one tooth and you feel like you know the, the crap <laughs> is between all the rest of them and you want to you know i don't know anyone who can just floss one tooth but that's the victory yeah and, and you know you're, you're creating i think you know the big challenge is like the, the, the overarching challenge around behavior change around lifestyle change is that it's really hard to do different things than other people around you. That the best predictor of what you're going to do is looking at the behavior and the lifestyles of, in, in your environment. That, that, and so if you can create an environment in which it's easier to do the right thing, you'll do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I have another question. You talk in the book about eating to satiety. And so whenever I read stuff like that, I think about you know, the comedian Louis C.K., who has a routine about eating to satiety that I... He is so funny. I really resonate with, where he says, you know, he's making fun of someone who says, well, I can stop eating now. I have satisfied all my nutritional requirements. And then he looks at the audience. He says, you don't stop eating when you've satisfied your nutritional requirements. You stop eating when you hate yourself. <laughs> and, and I'm like, yeah, I get that. What what advice do you have to people who who've heard the satiety thing, who know you know eat to eighty percent full, and yet they find themselves we find ourselves eating just to the point of discomfort or beyond. Well, first it starts with what you're eating, and I don't know what Louis C.K. eats, but I presume he's not focusing on the whole foods. I really don't know. I you know I don't want to make any assumptions here. But you and I know that you can get a lot more volume with foods that are whole foods compared to processed foods. So it's going to automatically start filling you up. So that's the, where it starts, right? Right. So, yeah. And so, yeah. so I, you know, so I eat extremely well. So it takes mm-hmm. me, it takes me a lot, you know, a lot of potatoes, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. a lot of um, Thai curry with vegetables to to get to the point of discomfort, but, but I still get there. Like I still find it hard to say, okay, that is enough. I'm happy now. Every future mouthful that I take is going to reduce my happiness. Do you have, mm-hmm. do you have thoughts on, on where that comes from? And are there, is that, a, is that about micro changes or is, you know, do I need to go on the couch for, for deep therapy for 20 years? How do you, how do you, how do you help people? <laughs> it's probably like not a deep therapy situation. And I'm one of those people too who just, I really like my food. I like to eat a lot of food. And I'm not one of those eat to 80% people because I, I figure, um, you, you know, it's overlaying it with um, where is that 80% change. And it makes, it feels like a external restriction for me. And I, you know, I look at that, there's squirrels running around my desk in my, um, on my deck outside my office right here. And, you know, I don't think they're engaging 80 percent fullness on their um, their what they're eating, but I, what it comes down to, I believe, is 
First, having the right kind of food so that you are having the best match for satiation and satiety, which are two different things, by the way, because satiety is that thing that stays with you over time. So you feel, you know, if you have a, a good solid breakfast, it kind of lasts with you till lunch. Okay. And satiation is filling up right now, like, you know, pat your stomach, I've had, I've had my fill. Mm. And it, it can come related to looking at what your aspirations are outside of just that that one meal. So sometimes if we can become aware of that in a certain amount of time, how connect forward to how we will feel in half an hour. And we, do you know what that spot is, right? And whether you call it, I don't know if you want to, what you call it 80% or what, but do you know when that place of fullness is reached so that you know you're going to still feel light and energetic, but not hungry? Hmm. Are you asking me if I if I know in that? Yeah, spot is? yeah. You know, I feel like that. I feel like very I, I do. But very often it's like, you know, when I used to commute to Philadelphia by train, it was like I knew when I hit, uh, you know, Fern Rock Station, but I wouldn't pay attention to it. Like because I because I, I knew I didn't have to get off until Temple University. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So it's like in the back of my mind, like, oh, yeah, for, but, but it wasn't like that place of satiety doesn't like, you know, light up bells and whistles for me. It's like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. that's good. Mm-hmm. Now, what, what else is there? Oh, look, there's still I'd rather eat that than, you know, <laughs> put it away in the fridge. Yeah, well, it's true also that some of us are a little bit different at responding to those um, pleasure cycle signals that we get from eating, you know, like the dopamine rush. Some people respond to them in a more um, a lesser time fashion or less fullness fashion, and some of us seem to need to ring those bells a little bit more to hit that point. But this is why the mindset mastery is important too, because if you are hoping, seeking to develop, and this is what I'm hearing, in if somewhere in a situation like this, what they'd like to do is to be able to develop a sensitivity to that point of being satisfied without being overfull. Is that does that sound correct? Is that like an intention you would say is in this um, idea you're bringing up? Yeah. So it's a yeah. yeah it's an, yeah, an intention to say I'm going to even though there's some sort of pleasure thing going on um, when I just keep putting food in my mouth. That I that I want to you know like you said before activate the prefrontal cortex that says look in ten minutes you're going to feel miserable you're not going to want to exercise for the rest of the day um, you may end up with gas and you're going to you know be yeah. a mess as opposed to yeah. stop now and everything is peachy yeah this is where having some kind of mindset mastery can help you and it doesn't necessarily mean that you are become better at controlling these points it means as like a stopping point for eating it means that you are developing an awareness of being able to find points of intervention so that you then have flexibility within that you know hunger fullness cycle that you may be able to step in with equanimity and make a different choice for your fullness factor at that point in time. Mm. Gotcha. So in other words, you would be able to connect better how you are going to feel like in 20 to 30 minutes and with your stopping point right now. And it doesn't mean that you're always going to be able to do that, but your hopes at being able to connect with that which is you're obviously when we're in that kind of a cycle of that overeating cycle, it's a, it's a behavior pattern that has taken on a life of its own. That's our practice. That's just how we eat. So first becoming aware that that's of a situation that we are 
want to change. And then what is your intention? Well, I would like to have it so that half an hour later I don't feel stuffed and like I can't do anything for the rest of the day. So what are the, what are the things I need to do? And as I'm um, going through that process, for example, in that meal, can there be an awareness on my part so that I can see where that point might be? And you know what? A micro change you could make would be certainly still – you could start with becoming aware of that point and eating anyway. It's like putting the shoes by the door. I'm just thinking, you know, I'm thinking out loud here. The micro change with walking was getting the shoes by the door, but you didn't put them on. But what if we become aware of that point where, oh, this is my feel-good feeling. I, you know, I really want to eat more, but I know how good I'm going to feel just in 10 minutes if I stop here. And then eat anyway. (laughs) But at least developing that point of awareness. And then maybe, you know, next week you pick a couple days that you're going to start um, paying attention to that and following through. But that's where you really need some kind of uh, mindset mastery that's going to help you embolden those parts of you that are going to intervene through your other other. Um, practices of kind of just kind of plowing ahead with previous practices. Mm. So the micro change in, in this case would be enhanced awareness as opposed to any intention to act on that awareness. The tr- yeah, tr- it, trusting. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that's, you know, one of the things that I find for myself and then just in our culture is that we're very untrusting of ourselves, right? So we have to Somebody else has to tell us it's okay, just like you said a few minutes ago. Yep, and yeah. and, and I don't trust. You know, there's something wrong with me. I, I I do the wrong things. I you know I can't trust my my appetite, so I have to you know count calories and watch portion sizes and all this stuff. And you know, and I think if it's interesting, I'm going to try this. That when when we get awareness, conscious awareness, then we don't have to apply so much willpower and, and, and fight an oppositional behavior to it that mm-hmm. the, you know, that if we just trust that if we're paying attention, you know, if I put my hand on the hot stove burner and I'm aware enough, which, you know, it's a very low, uh, standard of awareness, I will move my hand. I won't keep it there and go, damn, I wish I could move my hand, but I'm so unmotivated. <laughs> Yeah, that's a pretty graphic um, example, isn't it? Well, you know, you'd bring up willpower, and this is, brings us back to the exercise again. Because anytime you move your body, you are restoring that prefrontal cortex of the brain, which is your command center, which is that part that's going to uh, uh, enable you better to make a better choice. And it's also what I think everyone needs to have some kind of a meditation or sitting practice so that they start to increase their ability to find these points of intervention. And the point of intervention we're talking about in this this specific case is that point where I know this is, I'm approaching that time where if I have um, calling this a perfect enough meal (laughs) right now that um, I will feel better in about 10 or 15 minutes. But you need to, we need to practice becoming aware of those moments in time so that we are not acting impulsively. And the best way to do that is by practicing not acting impulsively. And the easiest way to do that is just with a meditation practice, which can be as easy. And I know you're familiar with, um, I remember when we were at, at Summerfest last summer and 
you were on the stage and you were talking about um, how important meditation was, and you go, and sometimes I meditate for a full 30 seconds, and you just brought down the house, because everyone of course, of course thought you were going to say 30 minutes, or, <laughs> and you said 30 seconds, and that that's my point exactly. Um, when you boil it down, any kind of meditation practice, and I'm not talking anything connected with the religion, it's very non-religious in nature, it's all very psychology-oriented. All it is is bringing your, your point of attention back because our mind's job is to go all over the place and take off and follow this thought and plan and dream and fantasize and recall and all of that. So if you take start with a micro change of, say, five minutes a day, and all you're going to do during that time is connect with, let's say, your right where your breath is at your nose and just watch that. That's all you have to do. Assuming and understanding that your mind is going to wander at least a thousand times in that five minutes. And your job is not to not let your mind wander. Your job is to not move or and to bring your mind back. So if you have five minutes of not following through on the urge to scratch your nose or move your knee or um, get up and jump up and go do the thing that's so important that you have to do, what you're doing is training yourself um, to be able to not necessarily reach for the cookie or reach for the extra plate full of whatever. It's, it's a training ground. You need practice in those points of intervention. And that's why I say it's so important to have all three of these things on your plate to change your plate. Gotcha. So, yeah, I just I, I recently did an interview with my friend Peter Bregman, who has an upcoming book called Four Seconds, which he says that f- four seconds is all the time you need to change your unproductive responses to productive ones. And precisely what you're saying around, you know, if someone gets angry at us and and we respond impulsively, we're likely to make the situation worse. And four seconds, the time to take a single uh, focused breath and um, inhibit that Mm -hmm. habitual negative, unhelpful response is all the time we need to formulate something else. But we need to practice it. Yeah, in the heat of the moment is not the time to to get it. Just like any of any other skill we're learning, you know, you don't do the sprint, uh, win the Olympic sprint by um, just going out on game day and and winning it. You practice that, and I think that's really important for people to get and for people to, and not to be discouraged if they're not able to follow through. Like we, you know, we're saying earlier, they want to be able to do the big thing all at once. Well, if you haven't practiced those things on a smaller level, um, it's going to decrease your ability to follow through and achieve the things that you want. Awesome. One, one more quick question. I know we're uh, taking a, a fair amount of time here, and, I, and it's actually, we haven't actually covered most of the book. So when it comes out, I, I want to have you back to talk about the, the full plant-based journey. But one, yeah, one other phrase good. that you use um, that I found interesting is a preoccupational hazard. <laughs> I love I love that uh, sort of uh, play on words. Can you tell me what it means and what we do about it? Well, an example is that uh, you know the the big bag of chocolate chips in the pantry that can preoccupy you and it's a hazard. 
because that's why I got preoccupational hazard of it. It's, it kind of calls to you, mm. um, even though it's definitely not. You know, it's not like your broccoli and your your crisper bin doesn't call to you quite like the bag of chocolate chips in your pantry. So for some people, um, eliminating those from their environment, especially while they're, while they're building some mental mastery and changing their diet can be very helpful. So that's different from saying, you get that out of your house, you should not have it in your house. This is inviting you to see how this can support you at a certain point in time. And it doesn't mean there might not be a time when you can easily have chocolate chips in your pantry. Um, I was one of those people that couldn't do that for a long time. Mm. I just couldn't have it around. But you know how I knew I was getting somewhere? <laughs> one time I was in the pantry and I discovered a chocolate bar there that I had forgotten about. That was, it had been there for two weeks. And I thought, this is cool. Uh-huh. You know, one of the, because I always used to think, how do these people have these amazing pantries? You know, my my friends growing up, they'd have this. My mom didn't buy sugary junk. She was a very kind of health food kind of person. And I'd go to my friends' houses, and they'd have these amazing, you know, like Cap'n Crunch and chocolate this and big jars of M&Ms. And I thought, oh, my God, how do you? How do you do that? And wouldn't it be wonderful to have that? But I would just be in there. I'd just plop down to the pantry and eat all day. And I thought, how can people do this and not, uh, you know, indulge for, for, for whatever reason? It's been a great pleasure to me to be able to coexist with these um, previous preoccupational hazards. Nice. So eventually they don't they don't have to stay hazardous. No, and it doesn't mean I have them around a lot. It's not kind of wise because they are an easy option, but I, I don't have to have the big taboo. That was my breakthrough with food addiction, too. I used to think it was horribly addicted to food, but it's this combination of three things that's made a difference, and I see that a little bit differently. So there's a whole other topic. Mm, yeah, I was just thinking <laughs> that that concept of addiction, which for a lot of people is completely real, but I think for, yeah. for a lot of people, the story of the addiction becomes bigger than the addiction itself. And so, you know, thank you for saying it like that. And I, I do not dis, uh, discredit anyone who has this actual experience. The research does support it. But I think there are too many people that jump on board and don't look at other tools that might be able to help them um, coexist with things in a new way instead of just saying, I'm an addict and, and that's it. Right. Well, it's the same thing as, you know, I think the, for me, the, um, the central axis around which my health uh, philosophy uh, revolves is empowerment. So if you tell me that there's two philosophies about cancer, one is that it's genetic and there's nothing I can do about it. And the other is that I could affect its progression with food. I'll choose the one in which I have more power. And so if you tell me that I'm a food addict and if I ever come near a cookie or a drop of oil that I'm doomed or you tell then me I will be. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you tell me that, that I can develop the skills, just like I wouldn't walk into a gym and bench press 350 pounds my first day, but after a couple of years, I might be able to do it. Mm-hmm. So I'm, 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 I'm glad to hear that we're not, uh, we're not creating a paradigm of, you know, addiction to the idea of addiction. That, yeah, and that's not, uh, it's not my approach. So I know there are other people out there doing that and helping a lot of people, but um, I want to help people in another way. Right. Well, I am so glad we got this uh, second chance. It sounds like we've got at least two more. <laughs> yeah, long, long oh, I, I'm very excited. It's, it's always fun to talk to you, Howard. And um, the closer to the book coming out, um, as you can see, there's plenty of topics and you've got so much experience in this regard to it. It's fun to go back and forth. 
Well, tell us more about uh, the book, when it's coming out, where, where we can um, find out more, pre-order. Well, I'll tell you what, it's coming out September 1st, and, um, and I'm so excited to be with Ben Bell, which is your publisher on whole, so that's kind of a, a fun connection for us and a publisher of the, of the China Study. But the best way for people to stay connected right now is to go to my website, which is com or theplantbasedjourney.com. They both point to the same place. And my newsletter there will bring people, keep people up to date with when the book is going into pre-release, when we're going to have some um, things coming up that people can grab a hold of as a, during pre-orders and all of that, sneak previews of the book. I did just publish the uh, the title page this week. I was so excited because of the, the, you know, the rough copy the manuscript came through, so I put that up. And those are, those, and that was a real, it's a tangible, it's like, oh, there really is a book with that title, and there really is a, you know, a watermark on it, so that was kind of fun. So, theplantbasedjourney.com is a good place to just go there and um, connect with me on my newsletter, and of course, Facebook, I'm on Facebook, too. Okay, great, and so, you know, I know that you, uh, you had a little bit of a um, digging your heels in with the, uh, with the publisher last week, so you could sneak in one more really important scientific study. Are you going to, as, as, now, that, now that they're not going to let you do that anymore, are you going to be posting that sort of thing on your newsletter? Uh, yeah, and you know, I would, like I said in my, you must have seen my, my post this week, Dan, that's been one of the hardest things about this is every day there's something new. Um, and even today about the exercise as I was, because uh, I'm, I have one more chance here to go through and I'm supposed to be cutting like 10,000 words and I'm almost there, but now I want to add because of this, just like this research about the, yeah, the whole grains and longevity, I had to put that in and it, um, you know, it did take a few more words in there. So we'll see. Yeah. (laughs) Well, perfect enough, right? It applies to manuscripts too. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) There's There's only two kinds of books done and not done. Yeah, and I can see how there has to be deadlines on these things because it can go forever. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. Now, now that you're uh, you're joining the secret, you know, Ben Bella Author Society, we'll we'll, we'll, invite, <laughs> we'll invite you to all our, uh, you know, poker games and stuff. Oh, very cool. As long as you serve cigars. Well, I'll tell you what. That's another thing. Um, listeners should be sure to know about Ben Bella Vegan, which is that whole new category at Ben Bella, or all their um, plant-based books, um, education, recipes. You know, whole is there. Trying to study there. My book's going to be there as soon as we get a cover, which should be pretty quick here. So that's a great resource for. Um, all these books, a good collection. Yeah, what I, what I like about it is that they're always coming out with these like all-star recipe collections. Now, yeah. you know, as a Ben Bella yeah. author and podcaster, I, I they send me all their the, the new cookbooks. Uh huh. But you know, if you know, if you don't want to buy all of them, like get on their mailing list for Ben Bella Vegan. You'll get you know for Thanksgiving they sent out like twenty five recipes and. Um, oh, it's an amazing it. resource. Yeah. So it's a great way to uh, to get stuff for free and also to decide which of those books you want to own. Yeah, and they're always running specials on them too. And they'll they'll uh, announce when Plant Based Journeys are progressing. They will keep that in your announcements too, so you can get in their newsletter and ask what you want information on. This little checklist, which which do you want to hear about? Great. Well, thanks thanks for mentioning that. Yeah. I know I know when. Uh, when the marketing department of Ben Bella hears the interview, they're going to rib me for waiting for you to mention it. So you win, <laughs> you win Ben Bella brownie points. For- oh, well, you know, I, it, it is a valuable resource. And I, I think like 
like me, you just want to give get everybody all the information they can to be the most successful and have the happiest life they can. So anything that we can do to advance getting tools in your hands, that's my philosophy about this whole project. Right on. And they do they do a great job. And there are some amazing, you know, in addition to our books, some more sort of, you know, science and behavior, there are some great cookbooks. In, oh, yeah. In that state. You need them both. Yeah. yeah. All right. Lanny Mulrath, thank you so much for your generosity of time and insight and My spirit. My pleasure. Thank you, Howard. All right. Be well. I hope you found that interview useful. As always, the links to the books and resources we talked about are in the show notes at plantyourself.com. Upcoming shows next week, show number 88 features Anjali Shah, the picky eater who has a great blog that's generated a ton of media attention despite her doing pretty much nothing to uh, solicit or encourage it. And following that, an interview with Heather Crosby, who is the author of Yum Universe. And I'll give you a little teaser for that one. She had one idea in her book, Yum Universe, about a way to make salads to go that has utterly revolutionized my family's life since I shared it with them about a week and a half ago. And uh, we'll be talking about that and I'll be showing some examples in the show notes. So stay tuned. If you like the Plant Yourself podcast, the most helpful thing you can do to show that like is to leave a review on iTunes, post to social media, tell other people about it. And if you're really eager to... uh, share the love, you can always um, come to plantyourself.com, click the donation button and throw me a little cash to help support this effort, which I do right now as a labor of love. There is no sponsorships, no advertising, nothing else going on except me talking to really cool people and bringing it to you. So with that, have a great week, my friends. Be well.